All right, so we're uh, picking it up in Acts chapter 9, and um, the title of today's message is Persecuting Me, Persecuting Me, and I don't mean me personally. Um, We'll see in a minute who these words are from. But uh, last time we saw uh, the message uh, was through an angel. That God gave a message to an angel, to Philip, uh, to go down, to get up and go and meet this guy who was on the road. Um, he was an Ethiopian eunuch. And we see that through this, God brought the gospel to Africa. And we saw that Philip continued uh, over to the sea and continued to bring the gospel up through. That this disciple, who was an apostle, um, was now an evangelist and on I would like to think of a first missions trip if I'd ever saw any. You know, God got him where he was going. Uh, But today we're going to look at Saul, Jesus, Saul's conversion, and really the beginning of the calling of Saul into the ministry. Um, But to kind of start off, really, just a reminder that these things are real. These things are real. Uh, The Bible's real. God is real. When we worship him, we are really in his presence. Uh, even when we're not aware of his presence, he's still really here and really with us, uh, thankfully. Uh, but again, you know, just to, to go along with uh, what Gus shared with us in the verses, um, really let us not be distracted from the, the calling God has on us. Let us remember who he is and what he's done for us. And I think that's great. These are notes that I had, and yet God brought it through Scripture, through Gus, that we would continue to rely on God and uh, really stay focused on him because he is real. And I think sometimes we... Uh, we just get hardened by life sometimes, and we forget how real he is and how willing um, and able he is to get us through what we're going through. Um, so, Lord, we do ask that you would just reveal to us the reality in these scriptures, God, the reality of your love for us and the calling you have on each and every one of us, God, ultimately to go home to be with you. And, Lord, we ask that Jesus come soon, return soon, we pray. Uh, but until then, help us be faithful to you, that, uh, God, you would... Uh, uh, get what you're due and what what you deserve. And Lord, that's the people uh, you love and the glory you're due. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts chapter 9, I'll read the first five verses together. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And we see it says here, it says that then Saul, this man Saul, he is from Tarsus, a part of Turkey, He was a Pharisee. He was very well educated in Jewish and Greek culture. We'll see as he uh, reaches out to the Gentiles that he had a working knowledge of Greek culture and uh, the philosophers of their day. Um, uh, You know, but he was well educated, well educated. And I I think that that's interesting that this man who was well educated and so smart and claimed to be so enlightened was breathing threats and murder. And we see that a lot today, don't we? That people who are claimed to be very well educated are very violent against those who would, they perceive as not educated or who believe in, in a God. But we see here that he was breathing uh, uh, threats and murder. That he wasn't just killing people. You know that there's a difference between killing and murder. That killing is uh, obviously taking a life, uh, but there's no hatred involved. Maybe it's justice. Maybe it's a death penalty. Or maybe... Um, 
you know, uh, there's a cow outside, you know, the old yeller, you have to take old yellow behind the barn and, and shoot old yeller, you have to kill him. But he was breathing murder. And murder, as Jesus said, is really, have you hated someone in your heart? Well, that's murder. You know, murder is, man, I, I hate that person. I don't want anything to do with them. I want them off the face of the world. And this is what Saul was breathing threats and murder. And I like this as breathing because it's, it's his whole being. As he's running around, huffing and puffing, in traffic on his donkey, oh, I want to kill the church, oh, I want to get rid of the church, oh, I want to arrest them, oh, he's just so angry, overflowing this man's life. So much so that he wants to go against the disciples of the Lord, and that he's going to the high priest for it, that he's so bent up and shook up and angry and um, hateful against the Christian church, he's going to the high priest, the religious leader, to get sort of an approval, a warrant here. Um, and he was going against the people of God. And I think that this warrant partly was justifications for his actions that he was going out and doing these things, but now he wants some sort of official sanction to go do it um, almost after the fact, but also, um, hey, you know, let me, put, uh, let me put some more weight behind what I'm doing. I'm not just zealous now, but I'm, I'm zealous with a badge. Um, you know, we think of political missions or targeting certain groups um, that we've heard about, uh, whether it's in our country or other countries, who go against what they think. And I think that that's exactly what Saul was. He was so bound up in his religion, so bound up in his ideology and what he thought that, man, these people were against it. And it, it, it got him under the skin to where he was willing to go out and murder people and arrest people. And it says men and women. You think, okay, you know, he's Saul, he's a tough guy, he's going to pick on someone his own size, you know, but he's going out and he's taking everybody. He's taking the housewives, he's taking the business ladies, anyone, anyone he's going out and targeting. And I think that it's interesting that this man's hate is so equal to whoever it is that would, um, uh, would be of the way. But he says that they call these people of the way, ask letters from them in verse 2 of the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who are of the way, whether men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And I like that. They're called of the way. You know, they're not really called Christians yet. We find out later in history that the Romans, the word Christian was kind of a pejorative. They called them little Christ. Oh, look at the little Christ running around. Look at them. Are you going to try and walk on water? What are you going to do, little Christ? And that's where the idea of Christian came from. But at this point, they call themselves of the way. And I think it's from the verse that Jesus said, or when Jesus shared in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me that their belief system was distinctly different in a sense from the Jewish belief system. At their time, the religious Jews, at least the Pharisees, they were all caught up in the law. They thought that their righteousness came from obeying the law, and they were really obviously disconnected from God, as Jesus would share with them. Um, but they knew that the way to the Father was not through obeying the law, but was through who? Jesus. And that's why they called themselves the, the uh, members of the way. And I think it's so cool. You know, you could go around today and a lot of this whole idea of... Um, getting rid of quote-unquote Christianese and relabeling things. I'm a disciple and I'm a follower and I'm uh, uh, of the way. Yeah, that's all good and true. If you, know, if you don't want to use the word Christian, that's you know, up to you. But I think that it can be kind of confusing in this day and age because people are so used to, people know what a Christian is, whether they have a good idea or not. But you go, I'm a follower of the way. They go, what? You know, it's like, I, I don't know. Motives are out there. But it was distinctly different than the way anyone else was going. They were going to heaven, they were going to the Father, and they were going through Jesus. Um, and Paul, Saul at the time, actually did not like that. And that's why he was going after men, women, bringing them bound, bringing them to jail. And it reminds me what they did to Jesus. 
You know, Jesus said, a servant's not greater than his master. If they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And, and Saul was all about arresting these people, getting them off the street, intimidating them, and making sure that the church didn't flourish. And we've seen all throughout history, anytime that anyone comes against God's people, it always fails in the end. The church always ends up growing. Maybe people get arrested right away, but boom, it grows even bigger. But he was headed to Damascus, and that was in Syria, so he's heading north of Israel and Jerusalem at this time. Um, he was from a region much farther north than that, Tarsus in Turkey. Um, but it says that this light shone around him. He's on his donkey. He's headed out with his, his posse out to, you know, he's got his papers. He's going to go out and try and arrest these people and, and carry them back. Um, but a light shone around him. And I love that. It shone around him. It wasn't just in front of him. It wasn't like when you pull up to a red light and you have to stop. But it was so bright. And it totally encompassed him that, that God had him surrounded. That this man Saul, who thought he had all the power, who thought he had all the control, was at one point knocked off his uh, donkey or his horse and totally knocked out and surrounded. And what happens in this light shining voice? You know, he didn't get beamed up to a UFO, but he hears a voice as he's on the ground. He hears a voice. And this voice says in verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? You know, this, this conviction came, this conviction, exactly what Saul was doing. Not, Saul, why are you arresting people? Why are you murdering people? All these other list of charges that the Lord might have had against them. But I love how Jesus just gets right to the, the heart of the matter. You're persecuting me, Saul. You're persecuting me. You know, why was he doing it? It was because it was against his belief in who God was. Saul had a different God. Saul believed the old scriptures. He knew the old scriptures. He was studied in the Old Testament scriptures that we might call them. But he didn't believe in the same God. He obviously didn't take the scriptures to God and realize, oh, wait a minute, if these scriptures are true and I really believe them, then Jesus is the Messiah. He had missed the point. And I think that's why Saul responds, who are you, Lord? He realizes that this being that's surrounding him, this bright light and this voice has more power than him. So he uses the term Lord, <laughs> you know. Who are you? He still doesn't quite get it, even though, you know, there's still this, this disconnect. I guess this blind rage that Saul still had, that even when the Lord confronts him and says, you're persecuting me, he doesn't put the dots together that, oh, I've been arresting the church. Oh, I've been coming against the church. And then all of a sudden I get knocked off uh, and on the ground and I'm surrounded by light. And he didn't know. He didn't know. You know, John five thirty nine through 40, Jesus said um, to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You know, that he wasn't willing to come to God. He wasn't willing to come to Jesus. But you know what? In God's eyes, it didn't matter. Jesus came to him. Jesus came to him. And he says to him, Saul, um, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. At the end of verse 5, well, what does that mean? You know. Well, if you're familiar with oxen, I'm not really familiar other than book smarts or maybe in a book or on National Geographic, but when they would plow a field, they would put the oxen together or just one oxen, and at the end of the, the harness before the plow, there was like some metal spikes because the oxen are stubborn and they would like to kick, so they would kick against this hard thing and it would cause them to keep going forward. You know, it's sort of the opposite of dangling the carrot out in front of the horse to get the horse go forward. You put um, something sharp behind a stubborn animal to force it to go forward. Um, and man, it, is, it would be hard to do that. It would be hard to do that. Um, you know, when someone's stubborn, 
man, we begin to punch and push against everything no matter how hard it hurts. When you're stubborn and you just want to get something done, you push no matter how hard it hurts. I mean, I know that's me. <laughs> I keep pushing. But God begins to resist us, I find, that, um, or rather we find resistance when we're trying uh, to fight against God. When we begin to go against God in our lives, we begin to find resistance sometimes. Yeah, sin sometimes is this wide highway and it's easy, but man, our conscience begins to get pricked. Oh, I probably shouldn't be going here. Oh, uh, your relationships start to falter. Hey, where were you yesterday? I didn't see you yesterday. Or things begin to break down and um, you begin to feel guilt or other things. But God really will begin to resist you. If you're a child of God, he'll resist you. He'll come against you in a sense to, to stop you from going the wrong way. And I find that too, when God gives us a directive, when God gives us a direction and we don't like what it has to say and we begin to kick against it, no, I don't want to do that. No, I don't want to share with that person. No, I don't want to give this up. Or no, I don't want to take this on or whatever the Lord is saying. We begin to only hurt ourselves. We can only hurt ourselves. When my kids get upset or they, they want to throw a fit and like Jacob this morning, he's little, it's kind of hard to discipline him sometimes, but he'll like throw a fit and you're like, Jacob, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to hit yourself. And I think that's the same idea. And when God says no to something and we go, we flail around, we're not really fighting against God. We're only hurting ourselves. We're only going to bang our head. We're only going to hit our arm. Um, and I think of Jonah. You know, you guys remember Jonah in the Bible. God said, hey, Jonah, go preach to the Ninevites. Go bring salvation to them. And he said, uh, I'm going to go get on a boat and go the complete opposite way. And what does he do? He gets on the boat. A big storm comes. Those poor guys are on the boat or drawing straws like, oh, we're all going to die here. We're throwing stuff over. Whose fault is this? And Jonah goes, it's my fault. Just throw me overboard. He still doesn't repent. He just says, hey, kill me. And what we find throws him overboard. The sea goes, storm goes away. Eventually the fish eats Jonah. He's in the belly of the fish for three days. And finally Jonah goes, all right, <laughs> you know, all right, Lord spits him up he goes on the land even even then he preaches the gospel the whole city gets saved and jonah's still upset at the end of the story like god i knew you wouldn't wipe them out <laughs> i knew you were merciful that's why i didn't want to go and i think that's sometimes with us you know man lord i knew you'd be merciful i knew you were going to meet that person's need and i don't want you to meet their need i want you to rain down hellfire on them but, you know james 4 6 through 7 says but he gives more grace therefore he says god resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's Proverbs, uh, it's Proverbs as well. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You know, because God gives more grace, because God gives more mercy, submit to him. When we find ourselves in a place where we don't like what God's telling us, we don't like the outcome, even if it's a holy outcome, it just kind of reveals where we're at spiritually in our heart. We need to submit to God because you know what? We're only going to hurt ourselves and we're only going to hurt others more the more we push on. You know, it's one thing to kind of go out and do something, but it's another thing when God tells you specifically not to do that thing and you go out and do it, man, I think sometimes the consequences are far worse. I know I've seen that in my life. When, when I've done something wrong and God, uh, you know, I hadn't told the Lord about it, you know, there's kind of this grace period. But man, when God says, no, you got to stop doing that, and I say, oh, whatever, and I keep doing it, it's a lot worse. But you know that these are the things to get us to submit. These things, these goads that God puts in our life, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever it is that's pricking you as you try and go against the will of God as a believer, they're not from God's heavy hand. God's not up there with his, you know, medieval mace with the spikes on it going, I'm going to get you with the goads. Come on, try and go against me. No, he's saying, I put these things up and really these things are just kind of there. And he's saying, stay away from them. Go the other way. Like the law might say, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery because it's 
These are walls I'm putting up to protect you. But when we go against it, we find ourselves getting pricked. As the Bible might say, that we begin to pierce ourselves through with many sorrows. Because it's not a heavy hand of burden. God's not trying to burden you when he says no. He's trying to free you. It's a gracious hand of love that disciplines. When I discipline my kids, um, it's because I love them. It's because I don't want them to keep doing that. It's because I don't want them to stick their fingers in the socket. (laughs) You know, get away from that. No, get away. Let's go on. Verse six. Uh, So he, Paul, Saul, excuse me, trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Then the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. He says that, the verse says that he was trembling and astonished. I think that Saul was having a total realization moment here. Not like a panic attack, but really, wow, this is real. God is here. Wow, like what I've been doing my whole life, what I've been doing these past X amount of days, X amount of months, killing people, arresting people, I've been going against the very God that I claim to love, the very God that I claim to serve. Um, and he's had face to face with reality, with God. I know he's persecuting Jesus, the very one, very God he thought that he was worshiping in his act. You know, that this person, the Bible says that there will come a day when people will think they're serving God when they persecute you, when they arrest you, when they hurt you. They think that they're doing a service to God, and we see that in different religions today. But it's important that we come to the end of ourselves. That we have these moments with the Lord, that we allow the Lord to rock us. We allow the Lord to knock us over. We allow the Lord to cut us up and poke us with the goat, so to say. And when we begin to have that realization, whoa, wait a minute, I'm totally wrong. I'm totally sinful. What have, what have I been doing? Oh my goodness, God is powerful. And you begin to tremble and you begin to shake and have a breakdown because of what the Lord's doing in your life. Good. Don't resist that. Don't turn against that. You know, the world kind of says, oh, they had an emotional breakdown. Let's give them some pills and put them in the corner and get them, you know, whatever, <laughs> week to week. Maybe if you're really stuck, maybe. But when God shows up in your life, let him break you down. You need to have that breakdown. But what is it going to take? What is it going to take? You know, there's guys who write a book um, called The God Delusion, thinking that people who believe in God is a delusion because he's so educated. Uh, But really the delusion is that we think we know better than God. That when we get to these moments, when we get to these problems in our lives, we go, oh, I know better than God. I can put myself back together. I don't need to be broken over this. I don't need to be uh, torn down over this. But Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That sin is just going to change your heart. Sin is going to want to change your mind so much that God sometimes has to break through. God sometimes has to poke through and allow you to come to this point of brokenness when you realize, wait a minute, what I'm doing is sin. What I believe is sin. Everything that I've wanted in life, wow, it's sin. In Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10, and maybe that's not you, maybe it's not everything, maybe that's just me, but the heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked. We read this recently. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind. But check this part out. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. That God allows these things to happen sometimes because he's, this is what you want. I'm going to allow this happen in your life. But I'm going to allow the rough consequences to happen in your life that I might get your attention. 
that I might get your attention. I think, isn't it gracious that as Saul is headed to go and persecute these Christians in Damascus, that Jesus cuts them off of the past and says, no, we're going to stop this now. And he doesn't just kill Saul. You know, he could have easily killed Saul. You know, he could have done it even where he could have thought it wasn't God. A branch falls on him, a rock, a meteor, the donkey trips. And, you know, he could have done it all these ways where he could have rationalized it. But God shows up to him. And I think it's interesting if you think about when they're trying to find the next apostle and they vote for Matthias and, you know, we never hear anything about him again. But we see what it was an apostle, one that saw Jesus and was witness to Jesus and Jesus gave these specific directions to. And we see that's exactly what happens here, that Jesus says, nope. I've got someone else that I want to show up to. But you know, without God, without God, we're getting what's coming to us. We get what's coming to us. You know, a lot of times we go through hard times in life or we screw up or make mistakes or people turn on us and we get hurt. And we just try and run from those circumstances. We try and flee in the other direction. We say, I've made a mess here. (laughs) It's too big for me to handle anymore. I'm just going to get up and move and go somewhere else. And then everything's good for a while, and then things begin to get messy again, and they get messier and messier and messier. And we go, okay, I just got to pick up and move and run away anymore. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you're stuck in those messes. Or maybe it's the other side. Maybe you're pursuing your dreams. You're pursuing good things, um, so to speak. But at what expense? At what cost? What relationships had to go by the wayside? Um, What about your morals or your convictions? Did you have to give up? What compromises did you make to get what you have? And what cost and to whom? Maybe it's to your kids. Maybe it's to your family. Maybe it's just physical health. But what it comes down to really is is not where are we going, what kind of mess we make, what exactly have we been doing on the outside, but really who are we fighting against? Who are we really persecuting when when we come to these times? It's, It's God because he died on the cross. He wants you and I to come to him And so if we resist that, we're really persecuting him. You know, Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, that, man, these things that we're going through, these physical things, are really just the outliers of a spiritual battle. Um, And spiritual battles have spiritual consequences. If we we lose a spiritual battle, there's going to be a spiritual consequence there. But Saul has this response to reality. What is it? What is it? He says, what do you want me to do? He realizes, man, everything I've been going this way, I've been doing this, I've been on this mission, I've had this plan, I've had this purpose, knocked off on the ground, surrounded by a voice and a light, trembling. Okay, now what? Now what? If I've been persecuting you, I have no idea what's right and wrong. I have no idea what to do anymore. What do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? You know, what do you want me to do? That's repentance. You know, you think of Acts 2.37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They realized they were sinful. They were cut to the heart. They were changed. What do we do? What do we do? And there comes a time when we're brought to that reality, guys, when we need to acknowledge it. Whether it's the moment of conversion when... We realize, oh God, what do I do? I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Show me where to go from here. I don't even know how to live life. I don't even know how to go to the store and buy the right things anymore. Show me what to do. But it also comes as we walk with the Lord, as we're spending some time with Him. Sometimes we'll be in a situation and we'll get into trouble or maybe we'll do something and we didn't even realize. We just maybe didn't pray about it. And we get into something and we go, Lord, what do we do? I don't even know. 
Show me the right way to go. But when we, when we come to that point, we must acknowledge it. And I find for myself that a lot of times that's the first thing in the morning when I can come to reality. That first thing, when you first wake up in the morning, that first fruits of the morning with your heart, it's very open with the Lord. And I find mine closes up very quick. That if I don't get into prayer, I don't read the Bible, I'm not doing my devotions. Um, you know, like Dr. Stanley said it, you know, as soon as you open your eyes in the morning, pray. It doesn't have to be this long prayer, but just pray. Um, and not to be religious, but really because there's an opportunity there to meet with the Lord that kind of gets lost if you go throughout the day. I don't know if you guys have been in that. I know I've been there where it's like, the alarm goes off and it's already six hours late. <laughs> you know, you got to get going to work and you rush and you get to work and you go about your day and then lunchtime comes and maybe you get a little time of devotion on your lunch or maybe you don't because it's a crazy day and it's the end of the day and you go, man, I just went through a whole day and I'm all messed up. I'm all jumbled up. But in the morning, a lot of times God will, will reveal these things. You spend some time with the Lord at night and the scriptures, they percolate overnight and you wake up in the morning and bring it to the Lord and there's that little moment of clarity when when, uh, when God can get in there. But we must allow ourselves to be broken before God and by God. And I'll find that sometimes when, when I'm struggling with something or there's a, a decision that has to be made or um, maybe I've been up, uh, kept up by something, that in the morning, man, it'll make sense to me. Oh, yeah, that's sin. That's sin. But it has to be before the Lord. It has to be by the Lord. You know, Luke 20, 17 through 18 says, Then he looked at them and said, what then is that that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You know, Jesus is saying, hey, you're going to get broken one way or another when you come in contact with a living God, right? He's all-powerful, nuclear explosion, so to speak. You're going to get disrupted by him. You know, your life is going to be changed one way or the other. And Jesus says there's an option here. You either let this stone... This cornerstone, this big strong stone that the building is built on, fall on you, uh, or you fall on it and you be broken rather. Oh Lord, I worship you. Oh Lord, help me. And you let yourself be broken before the Lord, or the other way, you know, like Wiley Coyote, that anvil will fall on your head and destroy you. You know, it's either now when we have a choice to obey, or at the end times when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and there won't be an option then to be broken. You'll be pulverized. And that's the Lord. He's saying, hey, we're broken by sin already. There's only two outcomes to this. And it's good to be broken by the Lord, but not to be obliterated. And don't think this morning that God wants to obliterate you. Maybe you've been struggling with a decision. Maybe you found yourself so far down a path in life that you go, I don't even know what to do anymore. I just got to keep going on this and we'll just see. God will forgive me because I don't know the way out of it. But God's not going to break you. Isaiah 42.3 A bruised reed will he not break. And a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. You know, God wants to bring that mercy to you. God wants to bring that grace to you and to I this morning. That man, whatever we're going through, he doesn't want to break us, so to speak, smashing us over the head. Excuse me. He wants us to be broken, then he might heal us. You know, oh, you're bruised, come here. Oh, you're smoking, let me fan your flame a little bit. Are you burnt out? Let me, let me rejuvenate you. Let me get you through this. You know, have you been going your own way? Have you been kicking against the goads? Are you worn out? Are you broken? Are you bruised? Maybe just from some indecision. Maybe from some fear or some guilt. But God is not mad at you for those things. It's okay to be broken before Him. In fact, it's good. God wants you to say, hey, these things in your life, it's okay to be broken. But you know what? You're going to be broken by a lot of things in life. Just come to me. 
Um, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly will I boast, rather, in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that's what God wants us to realize, that, man, we're weak, that we're not designed to handle anything. And it's okay. You don't have to make yourself strong. You don't have to make yourself capable of handling it because you'll mess it up. Maybe you won't mess it up as fast as I'll mess it up. I tend to mess things up pretty quick. But man, when I realize that I'm weak and that God is strong and that more than that, it's okay that I'm weak because he is strong, that's when God can find, uh, when God will show his strength in my life. Um, you know, I don't need to put on a show. I don't need to, to bulk up, so to speak, and be tough against the world. I can say, okay, God's got this. But it's great here that Jesus gives him a clear directive. Do we see a pattern here, like we saw with Philip, that there's a clear direction for him to go in? He says in verse 6, Arise and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And I don't know how you hear this voice, you know, but I, I kind of hear it lovingly. I almost hear it compassionately yet strongly at the same time, like, Saul, why are you persecuting me? All right, Saul, it's time to get up. It's time to go. Go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Like, there's this love there, but there's this, hey, man, You've been doing a lot of wrong things. I'm being very gracious and merciful with you because I love you and I want you to go the right direction. So you need to listen very carefully and do this right now. Um, you know, same way with my kids. I want to be the same way, very loving them. You know, you went, you know, you hit your brother, you hit your sister, whatever. You did this. You need to go and, and handle it right now because I love you. You know, but it's time to obey. You've been doing this. I've brought you to the end. In fact, I've had to knock you off your horse because, you know, you were doing your own thing. But it's time to obey. It's time to obey. And how many times in our lives that's exactly what the Lord is doing? He's bringing these goes, these hard things, these pains. He knocks us off our high horse, so to speak. And that's when it's time to obey. It's no longer time for messing around. That time of grace is kind of up. And God says, okay, it's time to go the right way now. It's time to go the right way. Um, but, you know, it's great that he gives them one step at a time. Arise and go. Arise and go. It doesn't say arise and go and write the New Testament. Arise and go on three missions trip. Disciple Timothy. Is that, you know, no, he says, get up and go to this city. Very direct again. <laughs> right down there. Don't make a left. Don't make a right. Just stay on this road where you're going. And these other guys who are with him were in shock. We keep seeing that. There's these people around that just keep witnessing the gospel, whether it's the eunuch servants, the guys of the chariot. And now these guys, they're in shock. I mean, I would be too. You know, you're riding along. You're on this mission. Guy gets knocked off. There's this bright light. You hear this voice. Maybe they understood it. Maybe they didn't quite understand the voice, but they heard it. Um, man, but they were in shock. Here's Saul, this tough guy. is now on the ground, you know, messed up. You know, that's the same thing that others might not know exactly what you're going through when God shows up. When you get broken by God, you might be on the ground and others are going, I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't know what to do to help you. What's going on? I, I see something happening in your life. I can't explain it, and I don't really get it, but what's going on? And I think that that's a good witness for them. You know, they may have been close enough to hear what God is saying to you, but not understand it. Maybe they're sitting with you in service somewhere. Maybe they're in the car with you, and the message is on, and they see you just getting wrecked by the message, and they're just kind of like, well, I hear the pastor talking about this, but I don't really know what's going on in your life, you know? Maybe they're there for that. But what do they do? They bring him into Damascus. 
And that's exactly where Saul had planned to go in the first place. Saul was like, I'm going to get up and go to Damascus, get these believers. But as we see, God, God working behind the scenes had a bigger plan. God said, oh, it's really my plan that you go to Damascus. You know, you want to go persecute Christians there, but I've got a better plan for you uh, there to go. Let's pick it up in, in verse 10. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And uh, here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And we're going to stop right there for now. It says in verse 10, And now there was a certain disciple named Ananias. And isn't it great to hear that the saying, you know, there's a certain man named uh, Ananias before. There's a certain man named Simon who's a sorcerer. And we kind of got into these kind of uh, shady areas of these people and they had these problems and issues but here it says there's a certain disciple named Ananias you know so much better to hear that and the word the name Ananias means whom Jehovah has graciously given you know and the Lord calls Ananias by name how sweet that is to get a vision from the Lord of the Lord and he goes Ananias he says your name Bob Joe Sally hey I've got something for you and what is the disciple's response? What is any real disciple's response? Here I am, Lord. Not who are, not, who are you, not leave me alone, but here I am, Lord. You know, it reminds me of Hannah and Samuel. Um, remember, Hannah was barren and she was weeping. And the priest said, get out of here. Don't be drunk at church or at temple. And she says, no, no, I'm just praying to the Lord. I'm praying my heart before the Lord. And uh, she has a son and she dedicates him to the Lord. His name is Samuel. And in the third chapter, 1 Samuel, it says, And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. So he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord had called the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be, if he calls you, that you must say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood and called at his other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel answered, Speak, for your servant hears. You know that Samuel was a little boy. Um, he was woken up in the middle of the night and he thought it was Eli. Eli tells him to go back to bed. He hears a voice again, goes to Eli. And the third time this happens and Eli, finally Eli gets, oh, God's talking to you. God's calling you. Um, and I tell my kids that when the Lord calls you, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. You know, I remember when I was little, um, I remember not like the Lord would walk in my room, but I remember just the presence of God. I remember praying to God as a little kid and I didn't yet know him. You know, it took me 22 years to submit to him. Um, but the same thing, God's going to show up in, in your servant's life. And, and he, our duty is a speak, Lord, your servant is listening because he's the Lord, right? And if God's asking us to do something, it's probably good. It's definitely good. And uh, if we're his servants, if we're his disciples, we're going to do it. But another directive, and you know, guess what it is? Guess what God tells Ananias to do? We just read it. Arise and go. Arise and go. He keeps getting the same message out to everybody. Arise and go. Get up and go. And when God repeats something, he means it. He's not repeating it necessarily to these people, but when we begin to hear this over and over and over in the scriptures, and it's saying something to us. You know, when you tell your kids, take out the trash, 
you know, maybe when your parents told you to take out trash, I said it over and over. Uh, the police officer says, slow down. You know, he's going to say it over and over until he gives you a ticket. But when we begin to hear something over and over from the Lord, it's time to listen and it's time to obey. Because a lot of times it's those goats, it, those goads, excuse me, it's dangerous. Get out of the street. We need to listen to that. You know, whether you're driving your car in the morning, there's a message on the radio and you hear something that God is speaking to you about. You open your devotional. Same, very similar thing going on. You're talking with a believer friend and something very similar comes up. God's trying to reveal something to each and every one of us uh, those ways. And sometimes because we're so stubborn and so thick-headed, he has to keep repeating it to get it through. Um, but he's gracious enough to do that with us. Uh, but he gives them direct directions here again. A street name. How many times have you been praying and God gives you a street name? <laughs> Go over to Main Street, 412 Main Street, and they're going to find names. No, I've never gotten that. <laughs> you know, I've been praying about where to move and live. When I was in New York uh, a while ago, the town was called Goshen. And I remember years ago praying about, Lord, you want me to stay here? Do you want me to go somewhere else? I was praying about a lot of things. And just got Goshen. I was praying about coming down here. God said Bethsaida. It was like, all right, well, now what? <laughs> you know, I didn't have the GPS directions, really. But how specific uh, Jesus is here. Um, and he says, inquire for Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he's praying. And man, I think it's great that the result of this uh, experience in Saul's life is that he's seeking God. And I hope that you and I, if we can knock off our horse and we feel like we're on the ground and, and we're blind and we don't know the right decision to do, even if it's just out of selfish desperation, so to speak, that man, we would pray to God, that we would seek God. Um, behold, he's praying. And Jesus is the one answering his prayers. He's not sending an angel's time. Jesus himself is showing up uh, in visions and uh, speaking to these disciples. Uh, but man, I hope we would be praying. James 1, 2 through 3 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And man, God allows these things in us that we might see him come through uh, for us. But boy, do I want specific directions like that. When I'm praying about something, man, God, please be very specific with me. I'm not smart enough to figure this one out on my own. But would you want to go to Saul like this? God shows up to you in a vision and says, hey, Go down the street called straight. Go find a man named Saul of Tarsus. Um, you know, I want you guys to go minister to ISIS. I want you to get on a plane, get off, go find the leader of ISIS, and pray with him. Uh, Lord, <laughs> haven't you watched the news? Don't you know who this guy is? And that's exactly what Ananias is doing here. Right, exactly, yeah. What about the nice lady at the supermarket? Can I go witness to her? <laughs> You know, wouldn't you feel crazy knocking on the door? Excuse me, is there a Saul here? You know, God showed up to me in a vision. <laughs> um, but you knew, Jesus knew that Ananias would be faithful and obedient. How do I know that? Because he showed, Saul's, he showed Saul Ananias' future obedience. Jesus didn't give a false promise to Saul here. I don't think there was another Ananias that Jesus had as a backup, as a third string in case this guy failed. He said, I know this guy Ananias is going to show up. And this is exactly what it looks like. And I think that that's great that, that Jesus knew he could count on this man Ananias. Even when Ananias pulled to Moses and was like, Lord, <laughs> you know, you really you want me to go? Stutter. Uh. But Ananias was faithful and obedient. And I love that, that. That's a true disciple. That's a true servant of the Lord. That no matter if they get called to do something crazy, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. Um, you know, and he probably had valid reasons not to go. Probably had plenty of valid reasons not to go. But the Lord said to him, go. Go. And I don't know, how do you hear that? The Lord said to him, go. Maybe it was kind of like, Ananias, don't worry. Go. Ananias, I'm your dad. Go. Ananias, go. 
And verse 15 and 16, I think, are very powerful. Let's read them again. Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. We see that Saul later, as Paul would go before uh, Caesar. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's powerful that this guy, Saul, last guy on earth you think would be a chosen vessel to write the New Testament, is the guy. The last guy on earth you think would go to the Gentiles, this Jewish guy, this Pharisee, Saul. The last guy on earth you think would suffer for Jesus, and instead he'd want to make Jesus suffer, is the one who's going to suffer great things, he says. Um, you know, Acts 5.41 says, They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And, and Philippians, it says, um, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And it goes on, But I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Jesus laid hold of Saul. And he had great plans for him. Ananias and Philip as well and Peter. But you and me, Jesus has laid hold of you and I. He's laid hold of us. He's allowed these hard circumstances sometimes uh, in our lives that we might lay hold of him. You know, and for what really? Well, it's to suffer anything we have to. To suffer anything we have to. God's going to allow you and I to suffer anything we have to. Not because he wants us to suffer, but because he ultimately wants us to know him and make him known. And in verse 17 it says, Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on, on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he rose and was baptized. So when he received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And it says Ananias went his way. And that wasn't like Jonah. He didn't get up and, and go the opposite direction. Ananias knew that the, the way for him to go was the way that God wanted him to go, and that was his way. And it reminds me, those who are of the way, right? If we're really of the way, if we're believers, we're going to go the way that Jesus asks us to go. But he lays hands on, on Saul. He doesn't, you know, wring his neck or anything. He lays his hand on him, and he says something so sweet. He says, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, that God revealed to him that, man, these words that Jesus gave to Ananias were enough to make him realize that this man was a brother. Maybe he said it trembling a little bit. Brother Saul, don't kill me. <laughs> but Brother Saul... You know, the reality of the Lord, that these two different people, totally different people, going totally different ways and directions in their life, were brought together through these miraculous circumstances, and really that they saw in effect the same vision, Jesus. One was going to Saul, the other one was the guy coming to Saul. Um, and that's the way it should be in our lives with the Lord, with each other, that, man, we're different people. We're probably going different directions in life, but together in the Lord, we're going the same direction. And when God gives you or I a vision, yeah, it might be specifically for you and me for direction, but as we share that with other people, as we share a verse with other people, or we go out and share what God is doing in us, that man, that that vision would spark something in the other person. It would resonate with them as well. But verse 18 says, Immediately something like scales fell out of his eye. I picture like big old you know, Michael Jackson thriller contacts falling off his eyes that he can now see. Um, but his eyes were opened. You know, amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see that. This guy's eyes, maybe it was partially from the bright light. It burned his eyes and, and uh, some sort of scab came off. But I think more than that, it was a spiritual uh, awakening. You know, because again, sin brings about spiritual blindness. If we follow sin and get hardened by sin, we get blind to the spiritual realities that are around us. But it took a blinding of Saul's physical eyes to help him see spiritually. 
You know, sometimes that's what the Lord has to do to us. He has to take away, man, I can't see anything. I can't see my friends. I can't see my finances. I can't see my future. I can't see around me. I don't know what I'm doing. For God to be able to open our eyes and say, oh, I need God. Oh, wow. I can see now. Now I can see who my real friends are. Now I can see what my goals in life are, etc., etc. And it's great also that Saul arose and was baptized, that there was no waiting around. There was no second thoughts. Okay, I'm saved. The scales came off my eyes. I got my vision back. Uh, let me feel this out for a little bit. But no, just like the Ethiopian eunuch. All right, let's go. Let's get baptized. Let's go forward. I've repented. I want to go forward. Let's get this show on the road. You know, uh, like a dog after a bone. He's all or nothing. He's in. Saul is in at this point. And I think that might speak to us that we shouldn't procrastinate with obedience. And when God gives us something to be obedient to, man, we need to do it. We need to do it right away. And what does Saul do? He spends time with disciples of Damascus, the very people that he was coming to arrest. He's now spending time with. I love that. I love that. Let's go on and read the last couple of verses real quick. Verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. You know, immediately the scales fell off his eyes when he was prayed for, and immediately preaching began in the synagogues. That Saul immediately began singing a different tune. You know, and that's conversion, guys. That's conversion, that there's this different, this difference, immediate difference that happens in your life. Um, you know, and everyone knew what Saul was doing and why he was in Damascus. Everyone knew. All the Jews knew. It was, yeah, look, this guy Saul, he's going nuts uh, getting rid of every, all these believers. But can you imagine someone very famous changing their tune? It happens all the time in politics, and we rip them for it. Oh, they flip-flopped on this issue. Oh, they used to be for this. Now they're for this. Um, but would you believe them? Would you believe them? Maybe it was your friends or family when you got saved and you began singing a different tune and they said, I, I know you. You were just singing something totally different last week, even yesterday. What happened? What happened? But he increased in strength here. You know, he goes from being bold in wickedness to being bold and strong in righteousness. And again, I think it's a dramatic conversion, guys, a total 180, that this is real. He goes from being gung-ho to killing the church to gung-ho spreading the gospel. Um, and as far as our testimonies, one conversion story isn't better than the other. Saul's isn't better than yours or mine, so to speak. Mine isn't better than yours. Yours isn't better than mine. They're all different. And, you know, I think sometimes we think we need a bad testimony. You need to feel like, oh, I was a drug addict. I know I murdered 300 people and I used to steal cars for fun. And, you know, that you have this massive testimony that I met Jesus and now I you know, sell cars and, you know, whatever, whatever it is. We think we need to have this dramatic 180 in that sense. And maybe you do. Maybe you do. Maybe, you know, there's a, a, a God has to take such a hold of your life that it has to go that way. But, you know, it really doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be this dramatic, glamorous conversion that a lot of us think it has to be. It has to be a conversion of your heart. Maybe you don't look any different on the outside. Maybe you'll have the same career for the rest of your life, but your heart is totally different. You're no longer running around, Ugh, breathing murder, Ugh, but you're breathing life on people. And this confounded the Jews. And how did he do it? Because he proved that Jesus was the Christ. Paul was very smart. Paul was very educated. He didn't just walk in and say, I met Jesus on the road. It was a fantastic experience and whatever. I'm sure he used that. But what he said was, well, let's look at the scriptures. Let me prove to you out of these very scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Um, but not only in word, but in action. Paul was up on the Stoic philosophy of the time where your actions showed your real philosophy, and that's what Paul's life now had become. His actions really showed what he really believed, um, and that he really believed God. He knew the Scriptures before, but now he believed who they were talking about. And again, what does it take to be saved? Believe God. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, that He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Him, and that you can't be changed by anything else. You know, I was talking with a neighbor yesterday, uh, and they were sharing something with me and um, about someone in their family who was young, and I was sharing about when I was that age. I was like, well, it took me coming to the Lord to be different. And then she went on and was talking about my kids, and um, was like, having kids is what changes you. And I was like, uh, yeah, it does, but that's not what really changed me. You know, and I ask, you know, have we been changed? Have we been changed? And do we hear Him calling? Because when we get changed is when we hear the calling. And will we obey? Will we arise and go? These are easy to say, but no matter the cost or the destination, you know, I'm really hoping later on God is going to call me to go minister at ISIS. But, <laughs> you know, but no matter the destination, no matter the people we're called to reach, because when we do, we should say, Here I am, Lord. Speak for your servant is listening. Amen? Uh, Father, we thank you for your love and your call and that you've changed each and every one of us, God, in so many ways, ways that God couldn't be done by anything else but you and your spirit, Lord. Uh, Kids or circumstances in life may um, be the goads that you use to get our attention, and we thank you for that. We thank you for those in our family who, uh, those situations that brought them to you. Uh, But God, I pray that you would uh, help us to be willing and ready to go and uh, to not hesitate and to be obedient, uh, God, because we're your servants, Lord. And for those things that we're going through that are hard uh, or difficult or confusing or we feel stuck, uh, maybe we're even just in active rebellion, uh, God, I pray that you would uh, get us through. And we thank you that you don't want to break us per se, but you want us to be broken and you want to minister to us and hold us close. So, God, would you do that? And, Lord, would you just be lifted up and would you come soon and let the world really see you for who you are and hear your voice. In Jesus' name. Amen.